Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. My name is J.Y. Ping, and on today's episode, you'll be hearing a conversation between David Busis and Elizabeth Cavallari on managing the wait list. Being that it's April, we felt that it's uh, timely to release an episode on this topic. Many of you already know that David Busis runs our emissions consulting services. Uh, Elizabeth Cavallari is the newest addition to the team. Before joining Seven Sage, Elizabeth was an admissions dean at William and Mary Law School, and in her capacity as an admissions officer, she uh, reviewed thousands of files. This conversation took place during the regular Wednesday 9 p.m. Eastern Time office hours uh, that, that David holds. Um, it's a great opportunity. If you don't know about it, it's a great opportunity for you to join and ask whatever questions you have. It's completely free. And it's just a great way to get some personalized attention from experts on your application. Okay, so without further ado, please enjoy. So hello, welcome everyone to our office hours. I'm David Busis, and I'm joined by Elizabeth Cavallari and Celine Steelman. So Elizabeth, um, I understand that you have had some experience with wait lists in your time at William and Mary, and I'm hoping yes. that we can pick your brain today. Absolutely. That sounds great. So I think my first question is just, how big is the wait list? I don't know if you can give us a definitive answer, and I'm sure it changes, but if we could give, get any sense of the dimensions, it would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it really does vary school by school. And oftentimes schools will tell you, you know, here's how big our waitlist is upon asking. For William and Mary, we kept a pretty large waitlist. So more than a thousand students would elect to remain on the waitlist. I think our waitlist size was unusual in being so large. Um, I would speak on panels and say that and other law school admissions folks would say it's that big. So I think most schools keep a waitlist a little bit bigger than the size of their class where if the sky were to fall and all of their admitted students didn't deposit and they needed a class, they could pull it directly from that wait list. Um, but for the most part, schools keep it a little bit smaller. I think William and Mary was the outlier. We kept a really large wait list. And what's the logic of it? I think it was that there were so many people we read in the application that had potential. Um, and we also didn't know how we might use the waitlist from one year to the next. Um, so as a Virginia State school, um, we could look at our deposit paid students and say, wow, we are mostly out of state. And so we really need to focus on this in-state population. And we want to focus on this in-state population for X, Y, and Z reasons. And so for us having a larger waitlist, it was better um, to pull for more specific reasons, um, but also kind of those bigger ones. And I think too is we don't you don't know what's going to happen, and so if you kind of keep some people out a, a larger amount of people out there um, that you can um, play out many different situations and still have a really good viable wait list. That makes sense. So let's talk a little bit more about this idea of pulling from the wait list to address specific needs. First of all, when does that happen? It could happen at any time throughout the process. Um, so depending on the school, um, it could happen shortly after they release their wait list. But often when it will start happening will be after a deposit deadline. Um, so I know deposit deadlines are coming up. Um, you can't make a deposit until 
at least April 1st, unless it's early decision. Um, so there will be some schools that are coming up with deadlines they've already passed. Um, many schools will do April 15th, May 1st deadlines. And so there could be some waitlist movement right after those deadlines. If you don't reach your numbers, you need to fill your class um, and fill it quickly. Um, and often you will um, over-enroll right around that um, deposit deadline or right afterwards because you are expecting to lose people throughout the summer. Other kind of big checkpoints would be if a school has a second deposit. Um, William & Mary was not a school that had a second deposit, but we would often lose students because they um, first deposited at multiple schools and then decided to make that that, that final decision of where they're actually going to enroll when that second deposit came around, when they had to have more money in the game. Um, so that's often a point where you'll see some um, movement on the wait list. And then otherwise, it can happen throughout the summer. Um, it could say your enrollment management um, needs may have changed. You need to look at the wait list. Um, where um, other schools decide to go to their waitlist later in the process for reasons unbeknownst to you, but it affects how your um, enrollment is looking. Um, so you can see waitlist movement from May all the way through middle end of August, although schools generally don't like to pull closer to that start of class, um, that students have already made decisions and put money down for leases, um, got things in place, ordered textbooks. So the further you go in the process, particularly late July and August, at least for me, I didn't like to do, um, do a ton of waitlist movement, but if you need to fill your class, you're gonna do that. But you also think about who might go um, and who might enroll at that very last minute. And that's where kind of that relationship building and getting to know the people on the waitlist um, could play a role. That if you know someone who you've been in communication with throughout the summer would come at the last second, that might be someone you might gravitate to if that space does come open at the last second. I see. So it sounds like um, one key point is after the deposit deadline, because it sounds like you may have some needs to fill around then, but it can also happen later. Is that yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Can it ever happen before the deposit deadline? It will depend on how the school releases their decisions. Um, at least for William & Mary, um, we release all waitlist um, and deny decisions at the same time. Um, so for us, it wouldn't happen um, prior to that point. Um, but for some schools where you might find out you apply to a school in October and you find out that you've waitlist in December, they could potentially pull you earlier in the process. I see. So you talked about filling needs. You gave an example about um, geographic diversity. Um, are you ever looking to the LSAT to, uh, you know, address? Um, LSAT median or GPA median needs? Um, I mean, how, you know, what sort of needs are we talking about here? What are, what's the potential? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it can run the whole gamut. So it could be geographic. Um, we could be looking at average age. Um, you could also be looking at people coming from work or coming right from undergrad. Um, we pride ourselves about 50, being 50-50, but it could also be um, we have certain um, numbers that we want to meet as well. So it could be LSAT and GPA driven. Um, so if you're an undergraduate student, um, you're, no matter where you enroll, you have to submit your final um, transcript. But if you had a really strong last semester and your GPA even went up a couple tenths of a point, still send that updated um, transcript because that can make a difference. Um, and LSAT could play a role. Um, we would have students come into our office and say, what can we do to increase our chances of admission? And we might look at that application and say, you know, the LSAT is 
or did give us a little pause for concern, maybe you want to consider retaking that. Um, so it could be LSAT and GPA, but also myriad other factors. That makes sense. And so what does it look like when you review the wait list? Let's say that you realize you want more students with work experience, for example. How do you go about finding them? Sure. Um, so it starts off with reporting. So all the information that you're putting in your application um, is reportable and we can run reports on that. Um, and so I can pull that, I would pull that information and see, okay, here's um, people right from undergrad based on graduation year, here are people a few more years out, what are we looking for? And then you're kind of cold the list from there. Um, we're also a school that looked at, you know, did you show continued interest? Um, so someone who um, was not in contact in our off with our office is less likely to be initially reached out to to see if they're still interested. It doesn't mean it won't happen, um, but people who show interest um, does play a role um, and all of that is tracked as well. How should you show interest? Um, I think a letter of continued interest, um, an email, um, a phone call. We tracked everything. Um, most schools will track it in some way, shape, or form, but it's asking that question. Would you prefer if I picked up the phone? Or would you want me to send a letter of continued interest? And most schools also have FAQs or information about the waitlist on their website. Do what they suggest. If they say, we're really interested in receiving letters of continued interest, um, and but we prefer you not to call, then do what they're asking you to do. Um, and that may sound silly. Um, I, would, I met with a student once, and actually this probably happened multiple times. They said, well, how often should I contact you? And I said, you know, why don't you touch base um, after the second deposit deadline, and then maybe check in, um, you know, once a month at that point. Um, I know you're interested. I've noted it. We've been in communication. And the response will be, okay, I'll contact you every week. Um, so I'm like, ah, that's not exactly what I said. Um, and so I appreciate their eagerness. Um, I didn't appreciate their unwillingness to follow kind of instructions um, that we'll be in contact with a lot of students over the summer. And just because we don't hear from you all the time doesn't necessarily mean we think you're any less interested. Um, when a student would say to me, I'm interested, William & Mary is my number one choice. It will be my number one choice throughout the summer. Um, I take that at face value. Got it. And what makes a good letter of continued interest in your eyes? I think brevity, um, that we do read a lot of those, um, but also explaining, I think a little bit more of your interest in the individual school. Um, and if there's any additional information that wasn't covered in um, the rest of your application. Um, so you're a senior in college and you had just defended your thesis to say, I'm still interested. Here's what I've done in the interim that I think would make me an even stronger candidate, um, something along those lines. But again, the brevity, I've had people send me their honors thesis. And while I understand the amount of work that went into that, um, that's not necessarily giving me insight into you know, how this honors thesis in their mind would make them a better um, candidate for law school admissions at William & Mary. How brief are we talking? Do you, I mean, is two sentences okay? Hi, Elizabeth, I am writing to express my continued interest in William and Mary. Thank you very much for your time. I mean, I've seen that and that still has the same, um, I denote it the same um, as I would someone who put a two page letter of continued interest. I think I'd wanna know more about the student. So I'd probably say no more than a, a page, if it's attached, if it's an email, maybe no more than a couple paragraphs. But if someone just wrote me an email that said, I'm still interested, that still shows me continued interest. Do you care if the letter is attached or pasted into the body of the email? 
Um, I don't, um, but it also depends on the school. So some schools are, will be adding these letters of continued interest directly into your file. Um, so if that's the case, then you'll need to see you know, what they want. Um, so I'm looking at the William Mary website right now, and this is different than when I was working there just a few years ago, that when you submit additional letters of recommendation or a final transcript, they have a, a certain protocol. This is how they want you to save the information and send it and attach it. So it's asking each school what they want. And so like in this example, if you're sending an updated resume, it needs to be last name, first name, resume, um, and making sure that you're following that, those instructions to make it easier on whoever you're speaking with in the admission office. That makes sense. And how do you feel about paragraphs uh, that tell the admissions office what you think you'll contribute to the school? Not just why you love them, but why they should love you. Oh, I think that's absolutely fine. Um, for someone to say, I've done research on this club and here's what I think I can contribute, or I've done this kind of undergraduate research and I see it connecting to what Professor Green is doing in election law, like all of that um, plays a role as well. I see. But if at the end of the day, you're just making a you know, tick mark, yes, they showed continued interest. Do the students who put more effort into their letters of continued interest have a better chance of eventually getting in? It depends. And I think it depends on like in reading a letter of continued interest, if it's something where like, oh, this is something I want to make a special notation about. Um, because if I look at the letter of continued interest and then I look at the file, I'm like, oh, this is someone we're really interested in. Potentially, um, if spaces become available, you'll kind of make those notations along the way. So when I was running reports, it was not only this person expressed interest, um, but if it was something that was eye-catching or I thought could be more relatable if they were to be admitted. Um, so, I mean, if someone's admitted off the wait list, we still want to yield them. So what information have they provided us that we can help make those connections to make them a deposited student? I understand. So I want to summarize, and then I want you to tell me if I'm correct or uh, summarizing it wrong. What, what I hear you saying, I think, is that most of the time, a letter of continued interest results in you checking off a box. That box means that you've showed continued interest. And there may not be that much difference between a two-sentence and a one-page letter of continued interest. But in some cases, if the Loki is extraordinary, it makes you sit up and take notice and make a special notation. And in that case, that student probably really is better off than most of the other Loki writers. Yes. And then I would say with the caveat, it depends on the school, <laughs> um, that every school does things a tiny bit different um, differently. But if you, like, do I write one or not? Um, if it's school you're really interested in, I mean, take the time to write it. Um, you have nothing to lose at that point. I mean, you may have lost a little bit of time, but at the end of the day in the application process, you never want to look back and say, oh, there's something else I could have done. That if you wrote the best letter of continued interest you could, you know, that's the best you could have done with with what the information you've been given. Sure. And in your mind, is a phone call as good as a letter of continuing interest? It can be. Yeah, it, def it definitely um, can be if it's, you know, asking more substantive questions. Um, I'd often get frustrated that people would pick up the phone and ask questions that were on our FAQs and on the website. And so they were, I understand they were picking it up, trying to make a connection. And we take any call that comes into our office. I'm more than willing to talk with anyone um, who would give us a call, but it, would, it wouldn't show the level of research or even just following instructions. So it would get a check mark, but there's also notations that didn't take time, 
to read the website. And so that wouldn't necessarily make or break something. But again, go on the website. I keep saying this because I felt like I would be having that conversation over and over and over again with students on the wait list that they would call, they'd ask questions, say, have you checked out the FAQs on the website? Well, yeah, but I was hoping you'd give me different information than what's on there. And nope, the information that's on there is the information that we have as well. Can you give us some examples of good questions or just can you help arm students with, you know, ideas for what to say when they pick up the phone and call the admissions office? So this isn't necessarily... I guess a bad question, but one I'd often get would say, you know, I've read the FAQs, I've been on the website, is there any additional information? Um, or I'd have the student saying, I'm really interested, I want to come visit, but I'm unable to. You know, what information are you able to provide me? Because some people have to make waitlist decisions without being able to visit. Um, so asking kind of questions a little bit deeper. And some of those will have a little bit more basic conversation and say, but if you are admitted, you know, we'll be sure to still give you, you know, as high touch as we can, talking with alums, current students to give you the best information you can to make the decision if you want to attend here or not. And I think for, for applicants and for waitlisted students, often, you know, putting a voice with um, with an office, I think makes them feel better that they have this contact and it's not just this email and this name, but it's an actual person. Um, so I think sometimes I would forget about that, but talking with someone on the phone, you know, does, you know, humanize both sides of the process. Got it. Any other advice, not necessarily content wise, but tone wise for people who are thinking of calling an admissions office? Yeah, I'd probably say this is not only for calling but also emails so when students are admitted to schools of various ranks um while ranks vary um so do kind of lsat and gpa median so i would have people call and say well i was, was admitted to x school and their ranks more highly than you but you're still my number one choice but since this more highly ranked school has admitted me you should also reconsider my application and admit me the tone that you, know, you, you probably made a decision, but uh, a bad decision, but I'm going to give you another chance because this more highly ranked school. Um, <laughs> and we, we'd, get, we'd get that all the time. Like, well, let me just give you some insight about how I really think you should review my application because they clearly saw something that you missed. Um, so that's not the tone you want to take, but it could be, you know, one where to say, I know I've been admitted to these schools and just kind of laying it out that here are the schools I've been admitted to but I'm really interested in William & Mary and here's why. And let me make the connections, whoever you're talking to, let them make the connections about the caliber of the schools that you've already been admitted to, um, rather than kind of telling us how to make that connection. Do you think it's a good idea to lay out your other offers like that? I think it depends on the situation. For some people, I mean, I, I think transparency can be really good. And again, this can vary by school, but if we have a space open or we did a space on, open on the wait list, I'd reach out to the student who we're considering and just thinking about and um, ask them if they're still interested. And then I would come back and say, you know, where have you been admitted? Where are you deciding between? And how will scholarships play a role? Um, and this gave me some information. Um, I mean, as you all know that double triple, maybe quadruple deposits, you know, are a real thing. So if someone's been admitted and deposited at three different schools and they're still interested in us on the wait list, then they're still weighing all their options with scholarships 
and potentially playing a game that we don't want to play with a waitlist admit. Um, so that's helpful information to us. For schools that maybe are kind of our peer schools, if they provided scholarship information, that's helpful for us in the process because we are able to admit them. We might need to, we then know potentially the dollar amount that might need to go along with that admit to make sure we can get that student to be a deposit paid. Um, financial aid and especially merit aid, merit aid is not guaranteed for a waitlist admit, um, but if there's certain people that, you know, really strong on the waitlist and we think could add to the class, um, scholarships could go along with it. Um, so it's helpful to know, you know, what is the information that we want to be thoughtful of our time, but also um, an applicant's time. How often do students admitted off the wait list end up getting merit aid? In my experience, I felt like it was um, more often than not. Um, certainly not the size scholarships that um, students were getting who were initially admitted, but if we're you know, looking for these different pieces um, and we think they're gonna be a strong member of the class um, that we are um, saying, you know, what can we do to get them here? Um, and if merit aid's a piece of that, we'll do our best to accommodate. Got it. Let's go back. Is there an optimal time to send a letter of continued interest? Um, I think sooner in the process. Um, so shortly after you've received your waitlist um, decision, I would go ahead and send a letter of continued interest. If, if you haven't heard anything, in a few months, maybe even a month, I don't think an additional letter is necessary, but just kind of an email checking in. Some schools will offer waitlist status updates online so you can see if there's been movement, if there hasn't been movement, but it's okay to send an email to say, I'm just checking in. You'll probably get back. Um, there's been no change. I know of your continued interest, you know, thanks for contacting us, um, but it's okay to kind of do like a little ping to say, I'm still interested without having to send all this other information along with it. Does visiting help? It can help. Um, there's definitely times where a student has sat in my office and I've gotten to know them and things that maybe were a little flatter in the application um, really come to life as this person sitting in front of you and sharing their own experiences. It doesn't always make a difference. I could meet someone and say, oh, I think this person is wonderful. And then we've only, we already admitted two people from the wait list and we don't admit anyone else for the rest of the cycle. Um, so it could, but not necessarily guaranteeing anything. Got it. Is there anything else that waitlisted students can do? Um, I think listening to information of the admission officer. So I meet with students, um, waitlisted applicants, and um, we look at their file and they could have um, lower LSAT, an upward trend on their GPA, but still kind of below on both medians. And I would say, you know, maybe you want to consider retaking the June LSAT. Um, or, and they'd say, no, I don't want to do that. And like, that's their decision. But if they're looking for information to improve their application, um, kind of taking that advice to heart and really considering it. Does sending an additional letter of recommendation ever help? That's a tough one for me because um, most often not. And the hard thing with letters of additional letters of recommendation is you're taking up um, someone else's time. So you're asking a faculty member or an employer to take a decent amount of time to craft a really nice letter, which probably won't make a difference in, in you being admitted off the wait list. I mean, there's certainly some exceptions where if you realize that the person you're working for, um, you know, went to our law school and they can provide some insight and they know, uh, it, it won't necessarily say like, oh, need to find an alum and have them send a letter because we also kind of manage expectations in the waitlist process when um, alums send us letters of recommendation. But if there's something that's significantly different um, that a letter of recommendation could add, 
it could help, but most likely not. Got it. Okay. I've got one more very specific question and I've seen it actually cropping up a lot this cycle. I see students worry that after they make a deposit, they endanger their acceptance if they stay on another wait list. And I think they're specifically worried that admissions officers might, you know, call you up and say, is this student still on your wait list because they've deposited? Does that ever happen? Is this something you should be worried about? It, I haven't seen it. Um, it. It doesn't mean it hasn't happened. I don't know if, you know, schools in similar geographic areas have more of a relationship where they share that information, but you know, based on LSAC good admissions practices that like you should have the option, you know, to stay on wait lists with maybe some exceptions of spe some specialty scholarships. Um, but if that's a question, you can go look at that statement of good admissions practices and it's okay to question it. Um, the only time where we might see where we would see if um, law schools participate um, in the overlap report, um, not all law schools do. And I think less are using it each year, but you know, we will see um, if a student is deposited at our school, and if we choose to participate that year, we'll see where else they've deposited for other schools that are participating. So if someone's been admitted off the wait list and they've been admitted, or they've been admitted to us, deposit with us, and then we still see them with a deposit at another school, that's something where we'll ask the question and say, you know, you've been admitted to us, you said you'd enroll, and why are you still here? And often it's like, oh, I forgot to withdraw. Um, I don't know if that's the truth or not, but that's what they're telling us and we're gonna go with it. And as long as, um, as, long as they can follow through with that. Um, but you're also entering into professional school. So I think you need to be holding yourself accountable to this code of ethics, where if you say you're gonna do something, you need to kind of follow through on that as an example of who you might be in this profession. But um, back to the original question, no. Um, if someone has deposited at William & Mary, for most cases, we think they've also, they're, they're on some wait lists. Um, so unless someone has told us, you know, I've withdrawn my application for all their schools, you're the school for me. Um, no one is necessarily like a really, really solid deposit until they're showing up on the first day of classes. That makes sense. Um, any final words of advice, Elizabeth, for people who might be on wait lists right now? Sure. So I think that you need to kind of look, look inside and decide, you know, where have I been admitted? Where do I see myself and kind of make that decision first and foremost. And then if you're on those schools with the wait list, not just letting them all play out, but think about, you know, where are those couple schools where I could really see myself? Um, where could I go with no aid? Where can I go with just a little aid? And asking questions to those schools about aid, um, if that's something that might be an issue, um, but also kind of putting a deadline in your mind um, that, okay, I need to find a place to live, potentially make commitments with roommates and sign a lease. I potentially need to move somewhere. At what point am I going to say, this is when I need to get off the other wait lists and kind of commit to where I'm going? Um, so kind of mapping out your plan. Um, I think the wait list, there's your, you have no control. So how can you control the process for you um, where you're not kind of laying awake, thinking about it all the time and stressing about it? You know, put this plan of attack, write it down, stick to it as best you can as you go through the process and kind of waiting to see what schools to put you on the wait list do. Thank you so much for your time, Elizabeth. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider subscribing or leaving us a positive review. If you have any comments or suggestions, we can be reached at podcast at Thank you and see you next time.